Time is limited, but your success doesn't have to be. At LaPay, we are committed to helping you succeed while making the most of your valuable time. Try our simple, secure online payment solution today and you'll pay no monthly fee for a whole year. Learn more at LawPay.com slash DCBar. Welcome to Brief Encounters. I am Jill Morrison of the international law community, and I am here with Ramu Jallo, who is pursuing an LLM in national security at Georgetown University Law Center. So Ramu, I just wanted to start out if you could tell our listeners a bit about yourself and what sparked your interest in peace and security. Thank you so much, Jill, and thank you so much for having me on this platform. My name is Ramu Jallo. I'm an attorney by profession, and as Jill said, doing a LLM in national security. I think my interest in peace and security, and specifically women peace and security, sort of started off in my early years in university for my Bachelor of Laws degree in Botswana. I remember having a really keen fascination around just understanding the workings of the UN and what it meant to have a body that is all about the maintenance of peace and security. So I was really interested in understanding what that meant and what that meant for my region. And particularly, I think what that meant for my country as well. I grew up in Botswana and it's predominantly mostly peaceful. But I think starting my years of work at the Botswana Network on Ethics on HIV, it really opened to my eyes to some of the human rights violations that were being committed that I wasn't even aware of. And sort of the interesting rates that Botswana has observed over the years in relation to corruption, in relation to sexual violence. So it made me curious about the term peacefulness and what that really means. And just in digging deeper in that, looking at what it means to have negative peace and positive peace, just looking at peacefulness is not necessarily just the absence of war, but it being built on a number of different factors, including safeguarding human rights, preventing corruption, good governance, free flow of information, access to information, freedom of expression, these things building into a broader, more sustainable peace. So that's sort of where my curiosity started. Great. Thank you. And I think that a lot of people don't think of all of those factors that you listed as kind of being inputs into peace. So if you could just talk a bit about kind of the intersection of human rights and peace, because very often I think they might be thought of as kind of at the opposite spectrums, but I think your work melds the two. So if you could just talk about that a bit. Definitely. I think human rights is basically basically entitlements that flow from us purely being human beings, that we all have rights to movement, rights to health, rights to vote, rights to speak, to be heard. And all of these rights help us in terms of who we are as individuals in the environment that we live in. And it, these rights also complement our essence of being in the world or in terms of our standards of living. So if you look at water, health, socioeconomic rights. So in that way, speaking about peace and speaking about human rights are inherently linked in that a person can't really say that they're peaceful unless they have access to key services around, for example, as we talked about education, health, sanitation, 
and equally a person isn't able to be in their most peaceful state without being able to express oneself without being able to move as one would like to move so they are inherently linked and so i think when you look at some of the human rights violations that you see on the ground for example sexual violence rape for example failure to for the government to provide access to certain facilities in the case of people with disabilities and just the like in, including violations around the right to life we start to understand that human rights are inalienable they connect between themselves and so it inherently connects with peacefulness the more we are able to advocate and make a platform for the recognition and promotion of human rights the more peaceful societies are in fact a way of looking at it is by looking at the fact that you want to strive for the people who have the most struggles in society to have the best access to the human rights that they can so yeah from that perspective it's inherently linked with peace and not just the absence of war but a better quality peace a peace where everyone can be heard and everyone can move as they wish to and as they need to right thank you one of the things that you mentioned in your last answer was kind of violence so i know that a lot of the peace indexes list intimate partner violence as being one of those factors in your ability to, to evaluate whether or not a society is on the verge of kind of larger scale conflict as we think of, you know, in peace and security. So I was just wondering if you have a hypothesis as to why gender-based violence is often that canary in the coal mine when it comes to peace and conflict within a nation generally. I think gender violence and specifically violence against women, children, is a really good indicator because it actually unravels so much about a society to begin with first of all in terms of the positioning of women in society how well they are accepted how well women are freely able to operate in the space so that creates a really big indication about how the country treats women children supposedly vulnerable groups how are the rights of women or the voices of women being amplified and it also sort of shows you how gender norms work in a particular country so for example in the case of Botswana i come from a very patriarchal society and so that in essence then has a bearing on the position of women in families and also broader in the workplace and all of this has the trickle effect of understanding the placement of women basically so if it comes to looking at women in the home are women allowed to make decisions that protect themselves and also protect their children for example are you able to advocate for your sexual reproductive health health rights in your home and even broader looking at women in the workplace are there instances of sexual harassment in the workplace are women in decision making bodies key decision making rules that allow their rights to be safeguarded all of these things do give a great indication of where countries stand and so i'm i'm never surprised when i hear that looking at sexual violence looking at the positioning of women does create a picture around the general peacefulness of a community great and so you're writing your thesis on women's roles in advancing peace and security. 
I was wondering if you could just give some insight as to what women uniquely lend to this particular field and why it's so important that they be around the table when you are discussing matters of conflict and resolutions to the conflict within the peace and security realm. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. I think that's the the central question in my research. So it's interesting to unpack that, especially from the context that I'm writing from in Botswana. There are so many proverbs about in Sudana language that talk about the centralness of women in community, which is a, an interesting paradox because I also said that it's a patriarchal society. So it's interesting to note that Sudana culture or my culture does recognize sort of the, the harnessing force that women have within the community of just being able to form very amazing networks and to reach people that ordinarily cannot be reached is acknowledged as being a, a particular power of women in my context. And also just purely looking at women's positioning in the community, for example, looking at the fact that in a conflict, for an example, an individual wouldn't in the company of other people in the community wouldn't want to be seen as committing violence against an elderly woman, for example, which creates a power because then if you look at some peace movements that have been spearheaded by women, it's piggybacking on this position that women have in the community. And I think also from those particular contexts, it's interesting to see how women operate in the space. And in my community, I can say as well that a lot of civil society organizations are headed by women. So it's predominantly women who are going into communities seeking to understand what the problems are and trying to create solutions around that on the ground. So that's another sort of entry point for why women are so key when you talk about peace and security, that you can't talk about, in my case, conflict prevention without harnessing the very women who are making that happen on a day-to-day -day basis. Thank you. So much of your work in recent years, of course, as all of our work has focused on the impact of the pandemic. Can you speak a bit about how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted peace and security? Thanks so much for that question. I think it has been an interesting look at the impact of COVID on conflict generally. It's sort of a paradox because on one side of a coin, one could say that by virtue of having lockdowns and by virtue of calling for ceasefires to prevent the spread of COVID, that that could have actually had a positive impact on conflict because it would have reduced basically the incidence of violence on the ground. But the paradox is that on the other side of a coin, as we know, COVID really exasperated socioeconomic conditions and in, in, it worsened poverty in communities. It worsened access to services in lockdown, for example. So in this way, to the point of poverty being noted as a driver of conflict, that in a way was worsened during the COVID-19 pandemic. Even looking at the role or people active in the informal sector, and how all of a sudden women who are maybe selling on the ground, on the streets for the community, food, um, agricultural produce, having to close down and are therefore not able to access their livelihood does create frustration in the community, which led to more protests, which led to people taking the streets to assert their rights. 
And in the COVID-19 era, we also saw and continue to see a lot of restriction on protests, for example, or on being able to communicate because of fears around misinformation. So I think all of these have sort of had a great paradox, but I think that mostly I think that it has actually triggered and created vulnerabilities for conflict to possibly worsen in the future, especially because COVID revealed a lot of the vulnerabilities that countries have in the health sector, in the human rights sector. In fact, gender-based violence rates increasing worldwide because of lockdowns. So this only reveals certain tension points that need to be addressed if we want to curb conflict in the future, with states maybe having more investment in social security benefits for people who maybe aren't able to get all the things that they need, including very interesting issues emerging in terms of children and access to internet to keep school and education going. So these are the things that COVID sort of revealed, and it therefore creates a really great opportunity to reboot and reflect, which a lot of us did and continue to do so in terms of figuring out how we curb conflict in the future. Great. Thank you. So you started an initiative, Peace by Peace, in Botswana, which is dedicated to building a culture of peace. How would you respond to those who believe that kind of these issues of peace and security are kind of national issues, high-level issues, issues that are only impacted by high-level government officials or the UN, and that they don't have a role in this. They don't have a role in kind of building this culture of peace and security. I think my first sort of movement would be to challenge that thinking. I think that peace is actually greatest seen in grasswork community work. And so there are different tracks. You do have the high-level tracks, but high-level tracks or inroads around peace and security, they stem from what we're all doing on the ground. So I would say that it is necessary, just looking at all the things that women are doing in my community, for example, around human rights, whether it's access to the right to health, whether it's around disability rights, whether it's around socioeconomic rights, development work, all of these things that happen on the ground create communities which are more resilient. And then if you have countries or communities that are more resilient, that reduces your incidence of conflict. And also, it's also important to, as communities, have certain safe gathering spaces where you dialogue around these issues, not that dialogue is the only sort of way of creating interventions around peace, but it's important that communities create some sort of mechanism to ventilate issues. So in Botswana, for example, our common structure that we have at community level is the Kotla system. And this has been a harnessing point where you have traditional leadership coming and calling different citizens and members of the community together to just reflect. And so I think having that as a basis for peace intervention is really important. So in a sense, using that sort of cultural practice, I tried to translate that in the work that Peace by Peace was doing by having these curated dialogues with varied different members of society, because I think peace 
interventions are best when they're multi-sectoral and multidisciplinary. So having the voice of a doctor, an attorney, a psychologist, a sociologist, members of the community, human rights defenders coming into one space and having honest discussions about the things that communities are grappling with, I think is a really great way to promote peace. And speaking of that multi-sectoral approach, I know that the LLM program at Georgetown tends to draw a lot of people who are from military backgrounds. And you, of course, are not from that background. So I was wondering if you could just reflect a bit on your classroom experience and what it is like to kind of engage and dialogue with people who have perhaps a very different approach, but certainly the same goals that you do. Definitely. Um, it's been a really interesting journey. And I'm, I'm really humbled to be able to engage with that particular aspect of conflict, like what it actually boils down to on the ground. I think that what it's encouraged in me is a sense of realism, because talking about conflict prevention could sound like a unicorn to somebody who has been in the field and who's been, who's witnessed fighting, who's witnessed conflict. But I think the two can coexist together. I remember asking this question to the president of the Carnegie um, Endowment Institute, and I think the question that I asked is whether conflict prevention in itself is a necessary conversation to have. And the answer that I got that I don't think I'll ever forget was that it is necessary, but at the same time, conflict prevention shouldn't stand in the way of having necessary conversations or to be afraid to unpack those issues by sweeping it under the rug of conflict prevention to prevent, to prevent, to prevent. I think that's sort of a responsibility that we all have to ensure that peace is not unstable. It's not something that is created because of silence, but it's created because of a sense of dialogue and wanting to unpack these really hard questions. So as I engage with people who are in the military, they can tell me on the ground what that actually looks like. And also the impact of conflict, it's made me understand that a lot more. I haven't been involved in active conflict on the ground the way a military person would have, but I think it is all the more reason why we strive for peace because of the realities of war. Great. Thank you. I think that's an excellent note to end on. Thank you so much for being with me here today, and I wish you the very best as you continue your LLM studies at Georgetown. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for the platform and conversation. This episode of Brief Encounters was brought to you in part by our sponsor, LawPay. Schedule a demo at lawpay.com slash dcbar to see why LawPay is trusted by 50,000 law firms.